0: So there's clearly something about the American food environment that has triggered this obese diabetic phenotype. The question is, what is it?
1: Gary Taubes, welcome to the show.
0: Tom, pleasure to be here.
1: Man, I'm really excited for this. Your book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, changed my life and my entire approach to diet and uh, just read your new book, The Case for Keto, and I am blown away. So Gary, uh, there's a quote from your book that really stopped me dead in my tracks as somebody that really believes in the things that you have written about. Uh, Even I have a hard time with this one, and so I wanna start there. And the quote goes like this, fat people are not lean people who eat too much. How on earth is that possible?
0: Okay, so let me start with one thing In using the words fat people in the book. Uh, I uh, am speaking as they did uh, 50, 60 years ago, knowingly, typically, I would have said people who suffer from obesity are not people who don't to eat too much. So I just want to point sure. out that the uh, social and of the language was on purpose to make a point. And in um, the book, it
1: feels completely contextual.
0: Okay. So, you know, we've grown up with this belief system that people get fat because they eat too much. That's what we've been taught. If you, if you gain weight easily, if you're someone who fattens easily, another term, I knowingly sort of co-op from 1950s diet books um, the, you are uh, supposed to get that way, not because your body gains fat easily, or your body gains weight easily, just like somebody who's, you know, uh, might 12-year-old son, soon to be 13, is, uh, plays AAU basketball, and there are kids who gain height easily <laughs> and kids who don't, particularly at 12. So he's 5'5", and he wishes he was 5'10", and he'll never get there. Um, that's not determined by how much he eats or exercises, that's biological. So the alternative hypothesis, those of us who get fat and easily, simply our bodies want to store calories as fat. So some people's bodies don't, some people's bodies do. And the problem with thinking that those of us who do get that way merely because we eat too much is in the advice you give them is to eat less and exercise more, which doesn't fix the problem. The body's still trying to accumulate fat or it's still trying to, technical term is, partition the calories it takes in into fat. All right, I think we
1: need to dive deeply into that because that moment there is where all the conflict is. So talk to me about the, um, the energy balance equation and how it could be possible. And you talk about the mouse study in the book, which was fascinating. I'd never heard that before, but talk to me about how the, the energy balance equation isn't the only thing that matters. It just seems impossible for a lot of people that it isn't a simple equation of if I put in 2000 calories and I don't burn 2000 calories, I am obviously going to gain weight, and if I'm burning 2000 calories and I only eat 1800, then I should lose weight. And therefore I should just be able to tell people, eat less than you're burning. So why doesn't that end up working?
0: Okay, so that energy balance equation, which is the first law of thermodynamics that energy is conserved. Um, And again, since occasionally since the 1930s, and then it accelerates in the 1960s in the history, you start seeing people rely on thermodynamics as the explanation for obesity. So the idea is you've got delta E, the change in energy in a system, is equal to the energy in minus the energy out. That's what the law of thermodynamic tells us, and it basically just says energy is conserved. So if a system is getting more energetic, it's gotta take in energy, more energy than it expends. Systems getting less energetic, it means that it's letting energy out. The energy isn't magically appearing or disappearing. So the amount of energy in the universe is conserved. The amount of energy in a closed system is conserved. It all makes perfect sense and it's always true. That's why we call it a law of physics. But all it says is that one thing is equal to something else. So in this case, if you think of the energy in the system as the energy stored in fat, the energy stored in fat goes up, if delta E is positive, then that's equal, that's the equivalent of saying more energy is going into the fat than is leaving the fat, okay? If delta E, the energy stored in the fat goes down, Delta E is negative, that's equal to, it's the equivalent of saying more energy is leaving the fat than is going in. It's like, makes, it so crazy simple. It's the one law of thermodynamics, it's easy to understand. It's an example I use in my lectures is imagine if we were asking the question, why is the energy, you've got a room full of people, and the energy in the room of people is increasing because people are more and more people are appearing in the room You know, if they're coming into the room, that means more people are entering the room than leaving it. So the room's getting more crowded, the energy in the rooms, you know, it's just obvious. If your bank account is going up, if you're getting richer, you're taking in more money than you're spending. You know, if you're getting poorer, you're spending more money than you're taking in. It's all the same thing, but it doesn't tell you anything about causality. So for instance, somebody, the fat storage can go up for many reasons But the fact that more energy is going in than is leaving is just another way of saying that the energy stored in the fat is increasing.
1: Okay. But where this gets interesting is for what what people attack on this point is, okay, I'm willing to buy that the body has hormonal responses. And like, given if the insulin level is going up, then I'm more likely to store fat but that doesn't change the fact that if this person who is getting obese would just eat less, that they would hit a certain point where it isn't possible for them to store fat. So while there might yes, be some complexities true. at play, like let's just go to the chase, they just need to eat less and it will work. And you don't deny yeah. that that's true, right?
0: No, no, of course not. One of the arguments always for this energy balance idea was is if you starve humans, or you starve in rodents, they will lose weight. And they'll eventually preferentially burn their fat stores. They won't at first. First, they'll go through their glycogen, then they'll go start using their protein, then they'll shift over to using fat to preserve their protein, but they will lose weight. So, oftentimes, and, and I recently wrote about this for the, the news site Stat News, uh, and uh, I got numerous. Um, versions of emails that said, in effect, I got, I hate this. Um, There were no fatties at Auschwitz. Okay. And unfortunately, obesity researchers actually thought that way because you could starve people and they lost weight. Somehow that translated to meaning they got fat to begin with because they ate too much. So one of the ways you challenge that kind of thinking is you find other examples of biological systems that you could affect in a similar way. So for instance, you could, you have a growing child and you can starve that child and stunt its growth, but you would never say that it grows because it eats too much, because you know that the growth is a hormonal phenomenon driven by growth hormone and something like growth factor and other things. And the child eats a lot because it's fueling the growth, which is a you know, a biological response to the hormonal secretions. Um, you could starve a tumor and inhibit the growth of the tumor. But you would never say that the tumor grows because it eats too much. Even though once a cell becomes malignant, it, start, it will upregulate the receptors it needs to take in more fuel to feed its growth. I think
1: there's a subtle change in there that I think you make clear in the book. And I just want to see if I'm understanding this right, which is... The you can starve the child and it will still grow despite the lack of calories. It won't grow as much. You can starve the tumor, but it will still grow. It won't grow as much. And what's interesting in, in like this whole debate is: yes, there you're not going to find any obese people in Auschwitz because you've you've gone past some certain point that is the realm of reality, right? So most people are are never gonna live like that. There's huge implications when they're not um, you know, confined and having their food restricted that they're gonna go and and eat to another balance. But where the story gets really fascinating is somewhere in there is a breaking point where you can actually, and you talk about this mouse study, you can actually have them in a semi-starved state
0: and they still get a little fat.
1: They don't get as fat as they would,
0: Yeah, Um, that's not a mouse study. I do use examples of specific mice studies, but it is effectively every mouse study. So you have any animal model of obesity. And the most famous two were the, the, where you lesion a part of the brain called the ventromedial hypothalamus. um, And then these uh, leptin uh, deficient animals, OB-OB animals. And in those cases, you can... um, in a, yeah, literally semi starved animal. So, that what, what that means is you measure the amount of food that a lean animal will eat, and then you feed this, for instance, the leptin deficient animal only half of that. Okay, so, half so you're the
1: lean animal would eat, so we should be more or less in starvation mode.
0: You should be in starvation mode, and yet as the animal grows up, it accumulates a massive amount of excess fat anyway. So, that animal will grow up to be obese, it'll be smaller than the lean animal, it'll weigh less, but most of its calories will be, it'll have stored a significant amount of calories as excess fat, because that's what its body is trying to do. And the point is in every animal model of experiment, you can literally, you can, if not half starve animals, you can calorie restrict them, you can only feed them as much as a lean animal and the animal will get fatter anyway. It might not, may or may not get as fat as it would if it got to eat ad libitum, but it will get excess fat anyway, and in some cases will be definitively obese, as with these OBOB OB mice or the, the BMH lesion to animals. Um what that tells you, what it should have told the researchers who began doing these studies around 1940, is that the animals are have Whatever the defect is, it's trying to make the animal store calories as fat, or the fat tissue is now wired to take up fat and not to let it go. And instead, people just assume that somehow these animals were eating less, or they were more efficient, so they were still in energy imbalance. They tried to hold on to their paradigm rather than just simply say, look, these animals are clearly storing calories as fat, even when they have starved. Humans say they do that all the time, okay? So that's always been an, you know, the idea was people uh, obese people said, yeah, sure, I can, I can lose a little weight by eating less, but I'm hungry all the time. And eventually the weight comes back. And in fact, there are, there are trials done, there are famous starvation studies done by Ansel Keys at the University of Minnesota, where he starved conscientious objectors for wanted to get 25% of their weight off. And... They lost significant weight in the first six weeks. I forget the numbers at the moment. Then they lost a little less weight. And then eventually their weight loss stopped. They were hungry all the time. They thought about food all the time. They were exhausted all the time. Their hair fell out. Their sex drives went away. They were miserable. And then when they started refeeding them at the end of the trials, they put fat back on at extraordinary speeds.
1: At rates that were different than the caloric intake would predict?
0: Would predict. At rates, so you would predict a certain amount of weight gain, but instead, it was just sort of extraordinarily quick weight gain, and they all ended up fatter than they started. Okay, and people so one looking of the places- at that
1: study would say, well, you took them off, you let them eat whatever they wanted. Of course, they're overeating the calories, they're in this massive surplus, and they're just putting it on as fat. There's, there's no contradiction there in the energy balance.
0: Well, but, you know, when you have competing paradigms, there's often no care on contradictions. The paradigms tend, and by paradigms, I mean, you know, the literal understanding of a paradigm. So you have a whole way of thinking about the problem, and you tend to ask different questions. So another way to look at this is just to ask different questions. It's sure if we starve an obese person they'll lose weight. If we starve a lean person, they'll lose weight also, okay? So the question is then when you refeed them, why do they go back to being obese? When you allow them to refeed, why do they go back to being obese? Um, For the obese person, the lean person only goes back to being maybe a little fatter than they used to be. Um, But the other issue is why is it you have to starve the obese person to make them lean? Where the lean person can eat as much as they want, and remain lean for the and most part. And it's people's
1: argument though, that lean person isn't eating as much as they want. They've got more control, or they're doing more exercise, or maybe some are generous and say um, their hypothalamus has turned up the thermostat and they're you know burning some of these calories by kicking off body heat or something like that.
0: Yeah, and all of that's possible. But now you've got a whole variety of hypotheses you could test. So one of the things you know, one of my even problems with the research community in general was they never bothered to test their hypotheses once they embraced them. So that's, you know, at the end, if you remember at the end of Good Calories, Bad Calories, in the epilogue, I spent, it was the first time my editor really let me say what I thought. And I went off on the absolute failure of this nutrition obesity research community to do reasonable science, because even if it, when confronted with a viable hypothesis, So what scientists do is they test their hypotheses rigorously before they believe them to be true. And that didn't happen in this field. So the alternative is, yeah, it's quite possible that, you know, the people who remain lean just uh, consciously eat to moderation. Or one of the things they believe they, you know, they are smart enough to see when they're getting heavy. So then they eat less. But then you could ask the question, how do animals do it? Okay, because animals seem to eat as much as they want. Um, Certainly, you know, you look at the deer that, you know, are so copious in New England. um, You know, you get a lot of food available, you get more deer. You don't get fatter deer and you don't get obese deer. And they seem to eat all the time. And they're only physically active when they have to be. They're not going out jogging or running an extra mile. Um, I had these experiences in reporting good calories, bad calories. One of my favorite was... um, I was interviewing this uh, uh, New Zealand epidemiologist who Michael Pollan had talked about in his book in defense of food. And she had done these studies with, Uh, aborigines actually in Australia, uh, aboriginal populations who were living in urban areas. So they had relatively high rates of obesity and diabetes and hypertension. And she moved them back to the bush and they lived like their ancestors did and some of their populations still were and they all got much healthier. And she said in the bush, they couldn't overeat. And then she told me the story of uh, them killing a kangaroo the day before and eating six pounds of meat each. And I said, this, "You're going to have to define overeating to me, because these people are eating six pounds of kangaroo meat one day." And then she said, "Yeah, it's a good point." And then she told me the story about some of her colleagues coming out from the university in this in the city where they worked, and they came out to visit the experiment going on in the bush and they went for a jog and these aboriginals uh, were sitting around on their haunches laughing hysterically because this was the funniest thing they'd ever seen people voluntarily exercising if they didn't have to you know people come along uh like herman ponser the duke uh, anthropologist who recently wrote a book about his studies of uh, aboriginal populations around the world and how they do not expend any more energy than the rest of us do, and yet they remain remarkably lean as long as they eat their traditional diets. You know, as a journalist covering this field, I had the opportunity to move from discipline to discipline to discipline and to ask these questions, to look for the experiments, to see if they were done, to look for the observations, to see if you could find observations that were contrary. So you can find populations that had extreme obesity despite relative starvation.
1: Um, okay, before, before we go any farther, I think, especially because okay. I want to deal with Herman Ponser, who I've had on the show. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to get your hypothesis about what is going on. And in the book, okay. you go into a lot of detail about, you know, it's really a tiny fraction of caloric difference between somebody that Um, maintains their weight and somebody that ends up putting on, you know, 20 pounds in 10 years or whatever. And it was pretty startling to hear that. And so you're like, nobody ever talks about it's, it's, it's like, I forget what you said, like 12 calories a day,
0: 20 pounds in a decade is 19 calories a day stored as fat. Okay. So that's the equivalent of like, uh, I don't know, two almonds worth of fat, maybe one and a half. I forget the number. So, and it's, it's, M- more interesting than that, because you basically store all the fat you consume. So when you eat a mixed meal, your body immediately starts partitioning the fuel. So the, the glucose uh, goes to the portal vein, to the liver, and then to the rest of the body, and you burn that for fuel. And then the fat that you consume gets uh, carried by lipoproteins called chylomicrons to the fat tissue and stored. And over the course of a day, uh, if you're eating a sort of relative, you know, a diet of, say, typical fat, composition, um, you'll store on the about thousand calories in your fat cells every day and then if you're remaining lean, on average a thousand calories will come out of your fat cells and be used for fuel by the, by the next day. But if you're getting fatter, only 980 calories will come out, <laughs> okay? So that's what you have to explain. And again, one of my arguments about the the science in general is because people don't even never bother to quantify these effects. And because they don't actually study, the people who study obesity and hunger don't actually pay attention to the science of fat metabolism and fat storage. They're unaware of these numbers. Some are, some they're getting more aware as people like me have been hammering on them, but that's what you're explaining. So even if you say, okay, people get fat, because they eat too much, you still have to explain why eating too much only leads to 19 or 20 calories a day being trapped in the fat tissue out of a 1000 that goes in and 980 come out.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, it's, so a, it's enough- a real, just to say it in like super layman's terms, it is it is this really tiny amount that no one is going to be conscious of doing that would be extraordinarily easy. If getting obese over a 10 year period were really the difference between eating or not eating two almonds. Like, you know, it's pretty hard to believe that somebody would be incapable of doing that. So well, that's the other now, thing.
0: So if you're telling them to eat less, what's the issue, especially, you know, we all imagine, okay, well, somebody is obese, they're 40, 50, 100 pounds overweight. You could imagine how hard it is to get that back down to normal. But as we're getting fatter, we're getting fatter at this rate of 20 or 40 calories a day. I have a friend uh, I use as an example in the book, who by the time he was 18 weighed 400 pounds. It's about six foot three. So he was, you know, if he had been 220 pounds lighter, he would have had a healthy BMI. And you figure out that 220 pounds over 18 years is about the equivalent of 100 calories a day stored as fat. Okay, so he was storing 100 calories of fat a day that his lean friends were not. If you could stop that, I mean, he was miserable. You know, this kid was tormented Because he
1: was trying to get lean.
0: There were two reasons. He was miserable because he was trying to get lean. So he was was hungry his whole life. And he was being bullied and ridiculed for not being lean. Mm. So the extraordinary social burden of this disease on top of this idea that you're trying to eat less your whole life so you're hungry your whole life on top of the idea that you should be out there exercising so it's like you know i don't know if you've ever watched a gym class of um like 10 year olds run around the track but you could separate they they separate out basically by body fat content so in the front you have the short very lean ones who look like Kenyans, but they're 10 years old and they're flying around the track and their feet are barely touching the ground at the back. You've got the poor obese kids who are, you know, every step is painful. And the idea is if those obese kids are being ridiculed, right, because they're running slowly, they seem miserable, Mm. they're not flying and they're sitting there thinking, why can't I fly around the track like these other kids? What's wrong with me? you know, but the point is that you're talking 100 calories a day. That's, you know, don't eat that egg. One and egg.
1: So your, your point with that is that this is still such a small number that if it really were just that, this would be an easy problem to solve. Now, where this gets messy is that a lot of times the people that really get in bad shape, if you look at their diet, it's not exactly health food. And so what I want to begin to understand, and I think that the, the idea of the lesion in the brain of the, um, I think it was mice, uh, and how they, they become so ravenous that even as they're waking up from the anesthetic, they're like almost, you, you refer to it as, as gasping for air, but in, in like an eating mechanism, like they're, they're just, there's something compelling them to eat. And you had a subtle read on that. That was different. That really begins to upend like what the, the paradigm is you were referring to earlier is because I think people watching right now still are not going to be quite sure what your hypothesis is about what's going on. If it isn't, we know that eating less once you get to a breaking point does work, but why there's this tremendous gray area in people that put on fat easily.
0: Well, again, let's think about one of the arguments I'm making against the energy balance idea. As soon as you decide that obesity is an energy balance disorder, that means either intake is too high or expenditure is too low. You fix it by decreasing intake or increasing expenditure. And what you study is appetite and hunger and energy expenditure. So you have these hypotheses like You know, uh, maybe obese people just uh, burn off more calories or they run hot or something like that. And that could explain why their fat tissue doesn't accumulate fat. What you don't study is what was called intermediate metabolism. and might still be, which is all what happens to the foods after you eat them. And you could create hypotheses effortlessly, whereby the fat tissue is trapping fat. Remember, it only has to do 20 calories a day. If it somehow figures out a way to just hold on to 20 calories of the thousand that goes in, you're destined to become obese. And what effect that's gonna have on appetite and expenditure. In the case of these VMH lesioned animals with their gasping for food, which is how it was described to me by a researcher who did these rodent experiments in the 60s and 70s. Um, What's so interesting is when you lesion that part of the brain, the ventromedial uh, ventromedial hypothalamus, the first um, measurable physiological effect you see is an increase in insulin secretion. So basically these animals start hyper secreting insulin. And what insulin does is it partitions, doesn't just partition calories into fat. It also shuts off the oxidation, the use of fat for fuel. Okay, so now you imagine these animals, they're a, you uh, uh, knock them out to do the surgery. They wake up from the surgery an hour or two later. And while they've been asleep, their insulin has been elevated and, their ability to oxidize fat has gone. So fat is the fuel you're burning when you're not eating and you're not getting the carbs. So you've in effect created two hours of starvation and you've cut off the fuel supply that they would normally be burning for fuel while there's like for instance, when they're asleep, insulin levels go down, fat comes out of the fat cells, you burn the fat for fuel. That's why we don't wake up in the middle of the night to go eat because we're burning our fats, Our insulin levels are low. That allows us both to mobilize fat from our fat cells and to burn the fat for fuel. Once you've created an effect, this what's called hyperinsulinemia, you've shut off that fuel supply. Since the surgery, the animal has been literally starved. And then it wakes up from the surgery starving. And the reason it's been literally starved, it's because it can't use its fat for fuel. So it doesn't have any glucose in the system and it can't
1: access the fat. So it's literally dying for energy. What is it about damaging that region of the brain that causes this? Is it that damaging that region of the brain causes a spike in insulin and the spike in insulin is the problem? Or is there something else going on? Well, that's the that sort of thing. I mean,
0: you know, the way when the researchers in the 1930s, when brain anatomists were doing these kind of studies, one of the ways you figure out what the brain does different regions of the brain do you is know, you lesion that region of the brain. You basically break it and you see what no longer functions. So it just happened to be that that was the region of the brain that if you lesion, the animal will both get obese and what's called hyper manifests this hyperphagia, this extraordinary hunger. But the interesting thing was, again, you could control what's food intake and the animal's going to get obese anyway. So okay. you
1: can starve, these are the mice that you starve and they still end up adding fat. Yeah. In these cases,
0: you uh, you pair feed them. So you only feed them as much as a, a lean animal eats. You only feed them, you calculate what they're eating pre-surgery and you only give them that much access to that much food and they'll get obese mm-hmm. anyway. So again, the argument and, is that you blame it on the eating too much. So you assume and the field did assume that the ventromedial hypothalamus is a is an appetite control center. This is at the heart of still many theories of obesity. And the way we know this is because when you break it, the animals get obese, get hyperphagic, they eat so much, but they'll and they then get obese, but they'll get obese even when they don't aren't allowed to eat any more than lean animals. So what does he eating too much have to do with it? And what's interesting is back in the early 1940s when these studies were being done, the leading neuroanatomist of the day, a man named Stephen Ransom at the Chicago, I think it was Northwestern University. Ransom had just come out of doing similar studies where you could create a disease called diabetes insipidus by lesioning a different part of the brain. And in diabetes insipidus, the animals urinate constantly and they're thirsty all the time. So they drink constantly. And what um, Ransom figured out is that the, the lesion actually causes them to urinate. And so the thirst that they manifest is not caused by the lesion. It's caused by the urge to replace the body water that they're losing through the urination. The same thing happens in in you know, untreated diabetes of any kind. Um, so Ranson said to himself, look, if the animal's losing water and he's so thirsty, it's so thirsty because it's replenishing that water, maybe this animal, the VMH lesion, is losing calories into the fat and it's eating so much, it's hyperphagia because it's replacing the calories that it can't, that it's losing into the fat, just like the other animals losing water by urinating. So his theory was basically just that, that the lesion causes the animal to accumulate excess fat and the animal eats a lot to try and replace those calories. And then uh, three months after he wrote that paper, um, Ranson died of a heart attack and his graduate student who had created this lesioning technique. Uh, Albert Hetherington in 1943 joined the Air Force and went off to participate in the Second World War. And so they stopped arguing for that theory and the counter theory that the lesion caused a hyperphasia was being touted by another former graduate student of Ransom's, a guy named John Brobeck. And John Brobeck kept writing about it and Brobeck's theory took over the field purely because Ranson died and Hetherington joined the air force. So crazy.
1: So your hypothesis, if I can put a fine point on it is the reason that people who get fat easily get fat is not because they're overeating per se, because it is still some part of the equation. Um, they're still intaking enough food that they're not below that breaking point where no matter what you're going to have a problem, you're going to lose weight. Their fats, their fat cells, for reasons we have not yet discussed uh, are taking up more calories than they ought to and it is leaving them perpetually accumulating fat because they'll be hungry enough that for them to eat so few calories that with their supercharged desire to grab fat it's basically an impossible way to live unless somebody locks you in a cage and so now yes. people say or, uh, oh this is a
0: concentration camp is the case maybe right. yeah
1: So people thusly look at it and say, and this is where I think the complexity comes in. They know the, the judgmental person looking at that person knows there is a caloric point that I could drop you to where you are going to get lean, but what they're not realizing is that, Hey, some people's fat cells are sucking up an unusual amount of fat, which is leaving them extraordinarily hungry. And I'm going to guess that part of this mechanism of sucking up too much fat is an increase in insulin. And so now you're not only storing too much fat, but you're not accessing the fat to burn. And so now to get fed, you're going to need to eat and this part now I'm really guessing that you may find yourself drawn to carbohydrate foods because that's going to turn to glycogen or glucose, excuse me uh, in your system. And therefore now, ha, oh, finally I have something that I can burn, but that's going to exacerbate the situation because now your insulin levels are going to go back up. And so you're in like this death loop of the only thing that makes me feel fed are these high carbohydrate meals. I'm able to pull a ton of fat into my cells as it is, but I can't get it back out because of elevated insulin levels.
0: It's not just that you can't get it out. You you can get it out on occasions, but as long as insulin is elevated, your body is being told not to burn the fat, but to burn the carbs. So if insulin is elevated, carbohydrates are your fuel. So part of this theory is also this concept of insulin resistance. So your body becomes, if you're overweight, the you know, particularly abdominally, if your waist size is increasing, that pretty much tells you you're insulin resistant. If you're insulin resistant, your body has to secrete more insulin to take up a set amount of glucose from, this, from the circulation and burn it for fuel. So uh, you have elevated, abnormally elevated levels of insulin most of the day. And when the insulin is elevated, it's telling the rest of your body to burn carbs. It's telling your fat cells to store fat. It's telling the rest of your body don't burn the fat because it's only supposed to be elevated when there are carbohydrates available to be burned. And so it's telling them to burn carbs. So carbs are in effect your body's primary fuel source when insulin is elevated and you can't switch over to burning fat because the insulin prevents that from happening. So now you crave carbs because that's your fuel. As your blood sugar starts to go down, you need to raise it back up so you could burn it for fuel, you crave carbs. And then sugar might be a special case, which gets into the hepatic metabolism of the fructose. And we probably don't want to go there at this moment.
1: Not, not at this moment, because I think there's um, more to say here. So So if insulin is raised And that's part of why, um, the fat isn't being unlocked. It's part of why you crave carbohydrates It's part of how you get in this death loop. Um, then the answer is, well, if there were a food that you could eat that didn't raise your insulin, then even though you put on fat more easily, you should be able to get into a position where you're just not giving any extra oomph to the system, telling it to store and store and store. And so now we get into cutting out carbohydrates.
0: Yeah. Well, there's another aspect of this, which is um, your fat tissue is the most sensitive tissue in the body to insulin. So if insulin is elevated even a little bit, your fat tissue will hold on to fat. That's what it does. And this sensitivity of the fat, the exquisite sensitivity of fat to insulin is something that's been known since pretty much as soon as they could measure insulin in the bloodstream. was the 1960s. Um, Actually, even before that, when researchers wanted to test whether or not there was insulin in the, like, you want to find out if someone's secreting insulin, you take a blood sample, you inject some of the blood into a petri dish, which has fat cells from a rat in it, because the fat cells don't respond if insulin's in the blood at any level, whereas other tissue might be resistant to it. The fat always stays sensitive to it. So the Ideas, if you want to get fat out of your fat tissue, the fat has to see, in effect, no insulin. Mm. And how do you know if you're, how do you minimize your insulin levels while well, you eat and affect a ketogenic diet? In fact, if you're in ketosis, it means your liver is seeing basically very little insulin and your fat is seeing no insulin because it's mobilizing fat from the fat cells so that they can be converted to... Ketones in the liver. So, the case for keto is literally some people, you know, the idea is so there's some simple ideas that come out of it. Carbohydrates are fattening because they raise insulin, and insulin makes us store fat as fat (laughs) in our fat cells. So, the carbohydrates regulate the fat storage in effect through primarily the hormone insulin. Other hormones also play a role, but you can simplify it to insulin. Um, so carbohydrates are fattening to those of us who fatten easily. Not all of us are susceptible. And if you want some of us, the case for keto, if we want to get significant fat out of our fat cells and keep it out, then we have to minimize insulin and minimizing insulin means in effect, minimizing carbohydrate consumption. One thing you said
1: in the book really plainly that it it sort of put everything together for me was when you're thinking about people that put on fat easily it really might be as simple as the amount of insulin that needs to be present in the bloodstream in order for the fat cells to lock down to pull in the fat and not release anything just might be really low and so my wife has a friend who man this woman all she eats is carbohydrates and she is just stick thin now Mm. if if that's true that would make a lot of sense that she just has a very high level that where she can have insulin in her bloodstream. That's pulling out the glucose. Um, but her fat cells tolerate quite a high level and don't have that same ravenous desire to partition, um, the available, um, calories into the fat cells. And when you think about it like that, my only remaining question is, okay, that makes sense. But where given that energy balance is a real thing, the energy has to be going somewhere. So what right. is happening for her? Does, does anybody know Have they done any tests? Like what's going on? Is she breathing it out? Is she running hotter? Is she, uh, is it, could it be all of out the above. in her stool?
0: Yeah. You know, when I was growing up, uh, I have an older brother who's two years older than I am. And he's always a little taller and he was always very lean. The kind of kid you could see like the, you know, the veins on his arms and, <clears throat> you know, already. when he was 10, um, I never really thought about it. We were just different. We were just different. You know, he, we both ate as much as humanly possible. In fact, by the time we were in our teens, we ate dinner and it was 18 minutes. So the back then, you know, your mother, who's a, work, you know, a working housewife, would cook family style. So like two roast chickens for four people and, you know, some starch and some green vegetable. And we would eat fast because if I didn't eat fast, my brother would get to it before I did. <laughs> So massive amounts. He was, he could not put on fat and I could not have been as lean as he was unless I starved myself. He grew up, he became, uh, didn't want to play football in college because he saw in a chart in the coach's office when he was making the rounds of colleges that they had him bulking up from 190 to 240. He was six foot five. And he thought that's out of the question. So he became a rower and he would row an hour a day and then run an hour a day and you know lift weights an hour a day. And I became a football player and I did get up to 240. You know, but I couldn't run 10 miles. He could do it, you know run 10 miles, come home, change into his street clothes and go off to class. I would, if I did it, I would, A, my body would break down and then I would be, you know, in a coma for two days. Um, It's conceivable that the reason he exercised so much, he ate enormous amounts of food. I mean, he once told me that he didn't get, never got stuffed. He just got bored of eating after a couple of hours. Whoa. Okay. But he could not put on fat. He just couldn't do it. So his body must have burned those calories off. And one way you do it, and when you, again, you go back to the you know, pre-1960s medical literature, the research would talk about the impulse to physical activity, like literally having energy to burn. So somebody like him, he's, he's going for a 10 mile run. He's not thin because he's running 10 miles. He's running 10 miles because his body doesn't want to store calories as fat. So it's got to burn them off. It's a different way of thinking about everything. So you kind of flip the causality.
1: Going, going back to Herman Ponzer and um, his take on the Hadza is that they're not burning any more calories than anybody else. Uh, They intake a ton of carbohydrate in the form of honey, but I'm very curious. What, what is going on there? Is, do you think that the data is inaccurate and they really are being more active and burning more calories. No, I mean, the
0: question is what, so the, the issue was always not the amount of carbohydrates, but the quality of the carbohydrates being consumed. So Western populations, you transition, basically refined grains and sugars were the problem. Um,
1: and those hit harder in terms of insulin versus honey.
0: Well, that's what we don't know. So then the question is, cause in the West you rarely see people eating more than a pound or two of honey a year. You look at honey consumption over a century, it barely changes. But what did change was massive amounts of sugar. Um, it's this question, what constitutes a black swan for hypothesis? So the um, part of the hypothesis, another aspect of it discussed in good calories, bad calories, is this Western disease observation, which begins actually in the late 19th century with a French physician who documents higher rates of cancer in urban areas, in rural areas, and in Europe, than in Northern African populations, and postulates that cancer is a disease of civilization. And then through the 20th century, a whole series of physicians from all around the world observed that when populations transition from eating whatever their traditional diet is to Western diets and lifestyles, they manifest obesity, diabetes, heart disease, uh, hypertension, arthritis, a whole cluster of metabolic diseases that that also cluster together in patients. So the theory becomes what's causing it. And by the 1960s, the leading theory is first sugar and white flour, and that's British physicians who have sort of, you know, been surveying all these missionary and colonial physicians and hospitals and clinics around the world. Uh, then that transitions into the sugar-only hypothesis of a fellow named John Yudkin. And then it ends as the idea that it's not the presence of sugar or white flour, it's the absence of fiber in these foods, in the carbohydrate foods we eat. And it's a story I tell in great length and good calories, bad calories, and how you end up with a theory that could coexist with the idea that dietary fat causes heart disease. The point is, it's, Clear that when populations are westernized, they manifest obesity, diabetes, and all these things. And a viable hypothesis is the refined carbohydrates and the sugars, and maybe particularly the sugars, the caloric sweeteners, and maybe even particularly Coke and Pepsi that you drink. <laughs> um, it leads to insulin resistance, which causes or exacerbates the risk of all of these diseases. Now the question is, you find a population like the Hadza and they're honey eaters and they don't have high levels of obesity and diabetes. Is that enough to refute these or this other idea? So once you say this population can eat significant honey Does that mean that it's not the Coke and the Pepsi and the sweets and the candy and the chocolate bars and the white flour influencing insulin and all these other populations? And the answer is, I don't think it's enough. Because one possibility is that when the Hadza started consuming honey, say a thousand years ago, they had their obesity diabetes epidemics then. And so what we have left is a population that's particularly resistant to the effect of the fructose in the honey. And the, uh, it could be that when you eat honey, you eat it differently than you do. You know, we drink sugary beverages all day long, um, starting with breakfast and then between snacks, even if we're coffee drinkers, if we drink our coffee sweetened, we're basically um, titrating sugar all day. Maybe I don't know how they eat honey. That could be different. So the question is, you know, Herman Ponser, as far as I know, I have to cop. I didn't read his book because it never got cheaper than $25 on Amazon, on Kindle, and I've been waiting for the price to come down, even though I know he's got a couple chapters in which he makes fun of my ideas. I should read it. I don't believe that's technically a black swan because the, the hypothesis is when a population transitions to Western diet and particularly the refined grains and sugars of a Western diet that triggers this physiological effect that manifests as this cluster of metabolic diseases, the Hadza have never made that transition. One interesting thing to find out would be if there are members of the Hadza who move into urban areas and do start drinking mm. their sugar instead of eating it as um, honey, that would be interesting. Because many so, of these observations were made by uh, actually British and, and physician missionary physicians who spend time in Africa, who said, look, I see different disease rates in rural African tribes that I see in urban African tribes. So a different spectrum of chronic diseases. And in Africa, I have uh, an urban black population that has very low levels of obesity and diabetes. But if I go to America, I will see a black population only 200 years separated in time with very high levels of obesity and diabetes. So there's clearly something about the American food environment that has triggered this obese, diabetic phenotype. The question is, what is it? If it's not the honey, if it's not the sugar, if you say the honey refutes it, I don't think it's enough. Um, I think there are too many other explanations for why the Hudson might be able to consume honey and not get obese and diabetic and heart disease and all the rest and what role
1: if any do you think that modern hyperpalatability of food which would drive people to overconsume you know what role does that play like in in I'll speak for myself like it's hard for me and I'm super disciplined it's hard for me not to just gobble 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 right it's there's so much good food and it's literally designed to make you want more and so Do you think that that's one of the things that plays a role or?
0: Again, let's see if we can find a counterexample, France. Have you ever spent time in Paris? I have. Okay, now there's a city that is full of extraordinary food, and yet the French are not, do not tend towards obesity. Okay, so why not? And you could say, well, they have a food environment. They eat. They eat with their family. They eat slower. They don't eat between meals. Blah, blah blah. So you come up with all these hypotheses to explain them. But clearly, the presence of delicious food isn't enough. And I don't think there's a French chef in the world who wouldn't be insulted by the idea that he doesn't try to make his food hyper palatable and make sure that you come back to his restaurant or her restaurant rather than somebody else's. So
1: if you had to guess. Um... What, what is going on? Is it, is this an insulin game or something else?
0: Well, again, if you just look at fat storage, so here's the idea. We have a disorder of excess fat storage. Okay. That's first principles. You know, somebody come there, 200 pounds overweight. Their problem is 200 excess pounds of fat. Fat storage is dominated by the hormone insulin. We know that that's no, that's textbook medicine. It's been textbook medicine for roughly 70 years. Um, Fix the fat storage
1: problem.
0: And the way one obvious way to do that is to take the carbohydrates out of the diet. And there are studies, even going back animal studies with, Diabetes in animals, You could. Uh, this uh, famous uh, physiological psychologist named Kurt Richter did these experiments in the 1940s where you create diabetic rats, you uh, give them this chemical that destroys the, the beta cells in the pancreas, so you have diabetic rats and you let them choose their own food and they'll choose fat and protein. And not manifest diabetic symptoms because they don't need the ins well, they need the insulin for the protein, but they have enough insulin left to deal with the protein. So and then we've got, you know, a hundred years of history of the efficacy of very low carb ketogenic diets for weight loss. It's just it's not nobody ever doubted that they worked. The problem was people thought they would kill you because of the high fat content. So walk me through
1: how, how do you live your life from a dietary standpoint? Like, are you worried about cholesterol? In the book, you talked about um, gout and uric acid. That was the one part where I was like, yo, if the diet is giving you gout, I would say we have a problem here. Um, how do you approach well, that? Well,
0: that's again, it, the question is, there's always a short-term and long-term responses to the diet. So if you store, for instance, uric acid in your fat cells, now you're mobilizing fat and the uric acid's being dumped into the circulation with the fat, and then you accumulate to get hyperuricemia, and you now have gout symptoms or reactivates gout. I knew a a Wall Street partner in a big Wall Street firm who said he tried Atkins and his gout backed it up, so he stopped doing it, which makes perfect sense. But the question is maybe after a month, it'll go away. You'll have gotten rid of the uric acid that's been stored to excess. And, and the uric acid, yeah. from
1: my understanding, is it would be coming probably from, I guess you could get it from seafood, uh, but more likely you're getting it from fructose consumption.
0: You know, one of my favorite sayings in this business was from uh, Eric Westman, who said, It's not what you eat, it's what your body does with what you eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it could be from the fructose. It could be that you're just, for whatever reason, insulin resistance all these years, whatever reason caused you to put on excess fat to begin with, to also generate, you know, some excess uric acid. You know, and as for the, getting back to the cholesterol and the saturated fat, let me say this about the red meat. The idea, remember, we talked about Western diseases. And Western diseases were, you know, you take any traditional diet, you give them, the, that population, uh, Western diet and lifestyle, when they manifest this cluster, that's obesity, diabetes, heart disease, all the things that are gonna kill us prematurely at some point. Um, many of these populations were mostly carnivorous or very, you know, so the Inuits or the Native Americans of the Great Plains or the pastoral populations of Kenya living on like, you know, animal meat were healthy until they ate Western diet. So they would have been eating significant red meat. Would the red meat have been different from the red meat we eat? That's a possibility. You know, there's no way to avoid that. But I just don't see that as the causal factor here. And as for cholesterol itself, I very much doubt that LDL cholesterol matters in an environment of low insulin. Um, If I had a family history of heart disease, I would probably do a statin just to hedge my bets, you know? For someone whose father had, I have my best friend's father died of a heart attack at 53. Whoa. Um. You know, it's a different risk-benefit analysis for Mm him. Um, Ideally, we would do the studies to resolve this issue. And you can do, you know, uh, scans and the like to look to see if you're actually if your arteries are calcifying, and then make some decision based on that. How um, do you teach your kids how to eat? Uh, nag them constantly, but. Um, but are you telling I, them
1: no carbohydrate? No, nah, uh, nah, they fat, hear that protein. from.
0: They hear that from me professionally. My youngest is an athlete and naturally lean and can eat a burrito the size of his head without blinking and uh, pretty much craves carbohydrates. And my oldest has my body type is thick set and it's not athletic and pretty much avoids carbs. So if you looked at them, you would say, well, clearly carbohydrates make you lean because it's the lean one who's eating them all the time. They have very different body types um, you know, they both know how I feel about sugar. We don't keep fruit juices in the house or sodas and, uh, you know, moderating their intake. They don't get dessert after meals. But, you know, then at some point, like me, if they start getting, you know, gaining weight easily, though, they certainly have the intellectual tools now. And they've heard me talk about it enough to other people that mm. they could give my lectures for me um but uh at this stage they don't need it if they had real weight problems and they were concerned yeah you know, then we would and what I do you say to somebody
1: start, who does have a weight problem they're an adult they're prepared to do whatever it takes um what's your go to keto.
0: <laughs> i wrote that book to make the argument that carb if you're overweight you have to carb restrict it's not about eating less it's about lowering insulin levels And if you really have a problem, then you might have to go to a ketogenic diet and here's how to do. And here's how to think about it. It's not a religion. It's not, you know, it's, it's your body is, can't tolerate the carbohydrate content. So here's how you eat without it.
1: Yeah. It's really incredible. Gary, the book was amazing. Um, Where can people follow along with you to learn more about the way that you think and how to think about food?
0: Well, my books are available everywhere. Fine books are sold. Um, Case for Keto is the latest. It's coming out in paperback in the end of December, 2021. Um, my website is GaryTaubs.com. I tweet Gary Taubes. Um, I usually wish I didn't after I did. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, I wrote the books because I, there's a lot to understand here. But once you get into it, it's very simple. It's basically abstaining more or less rigid abstinence from the carb rich foods in the diet and, you know, makes people healthier.
1: Agreed, man thank you so much. Your work has really changed my life and the way that I eat. And I can't thank you enough. I've been so excited to have you on the show for a very long time. So boys and girls, make sure that you read his books. Uh, The Case for Keto is absolutely phenomenal. I loved it a lot. Uh, Really, really enjoyed that one. And speaking of things you will really enjoy, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.